Um, before I hand it over to Sarah to do the introduction, just going to mention that there are some brief announcements. Um, next week on Tuesday at uh, 11 a.m., for those of you in Yosemite, we're going to have the Not Ready for Primetime Colloquium. Um, and then on Thursday, we're going to be having the All Hands um, also at 11 a.m. on Teams. Um, this uh, month is also Women's National Women's History Month. So um, there is a uh, special um, program from 1 to 2 Eastern time on March 30th. Um, and that's on Zoom. You can find it in your uh, DOI emails um, on Women of Change and Equity in the Workplace, taking a stand for our next generation. And finally, there are a lot of um, IT-related updates that are coming soon, depending on what um, kind of computer you're using. So be sure to check your emails for the things that you have to update um, shortly. So now I'll just hand it off to Sarah to introduce Sue. Hi, everyone. Um, our speaker today is our very own Sue Huff. Um, she wrote her own introduction, which is delightful. Before I get to that, uh, I do want to editorialize for just a moment. Uh, Sue's talks are always a treat because she has, to quote Liam Neeson, a very particular set of skills. Um, she does amazing archival research, and in a project she extracts um, historical observations that no one else would recover, and she, she really expands what we know about ground motions from historical earthquakes. Okay, so now to the excellent introduction Sue wrote. Sue joined the Pasadena office 31 years ago and is not quite old enough to have personal memories of the Long Beach earthquake. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Sarah. I was, I, I had made a request for no embarrassing introduction. Sarah, Sarah had threatened to not honor that, but she, she did in fact. So thank you, Sarah. Um, thank you. Shauna and uh, Evan and Susan for for organizing this. And now let me find out if I can if I've learned anything in three years. Share my, my screen. So, so hopefully you can see my screen at this point. Well, <laughs> no, I haven't learned anything in, in three years. I just unshared. Um, okay. Hopefully, people can see my see my screen at this point. Yes. Okay, great. So this talk was inspired by the very recent 90th anniversary of the Long Beach earthquake, um, which sparked some uh, efforts to commemorate the event, um, which I'll talk about at the end. And it was actually Susan Garcia's suggestion that well, maybe it'd be a good occasion for a seminar on the earthquake. And so I, I've been around a while, not quite long enough for this to be a personal retrospective of the earthquake. Um, but I've worked on this event in different ways, different aspects. And so it was sort of fun to pull things together and, and put this seminar together. There's a number of moving parts to it. And I struggled a bit with how to package all of it. Um, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to cover a lot of ground. Um, unfortunately, recent events just brought out the question that reporters were asking some of us, why are some earthquakes so deadly? And as we know here, the answer has a different uh, number of different parts to it. There's magnitude, there's location, 
And there's also societal resilience. And so we've seen tragically what happens when resilience isn't you know, up to modern standards. What's happened in California, the 1933 earthquake is a big part of the story of, of where California is today and how we got there. So I, I think this um, retrospective turns out to be especially timely, hopefully. So the outline of what I'm gonna talk about is, is here. I wanna talk about the context of what was going on, you know, 1933 when this earthquake happened, how was earthquake hazard viewed, um, what was going on in Los Angeles, then the earthquake itself, its impact, and then I'm going to end with um, some some talk, discussion of modern science that's been used to 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 investigate the the earthquake. So um, this was the city, Los Angeles, circa 1930 had already started to grow as a population center. This is the old downtown, which is um, just adjacent to the, the modern downtown. Most of these buildings are still there. This is a view looking down mostly west on Wilshire and Olympic Boulevard. It's not like mid Wilshire today, but you can see there were quite a few people by 1930 in the area. So the, the area had started to grow. The growth of Los Angeles had a population, as a population center had a lot to do with the discovery of oil in the area around 1900, where the initial, um, the initial fields were discovered. And then in succession over the next few decades, other fields were discovered, including starting in 1921, uh, fields along the Newport Inglewood Fault, and then, um, yeah, so that, um, that was going on. Uh, this was the Huntington Beach field. Uh, so that, that field was discovered in, I believe it was 21, and the derricks were right along the beach. So I put together a couple of ghastly slides that go through, sort of take us through what was going on, and I, I don't expect everyone to be able to read them all. Um, but I'm, I put it here so I can sort of touch on them. And the point is that as Los Angeles was growing as a population center, scientists, earthquake professionals were working to come to grips with earthquake hazard. And those th two things really happened um, in parallel and they were intertwined. So oil was discovered. We had the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, 1906, which was followed by mapping of almost the entire San Andreas. So the San Andreas fault was known, was known to pass on the north side of the San Gabriels above the LA basin. 1916, Harry Wood wrote a paper that talked about earthquake hazard in all of California, not just the Bay Area. Uh, 1920, there was a moderate earthquake near Inglewood. 21, the Newport Inglewood fields were discovered and oil production really ramped up at that point. Uh, Harry Wood started writing proposals to the Carnegie Institution and they were first supported in 1921. So that was really the start of earthquake monitoring in Southern California, the start of earthquake exploration. Uh, they were working in borrowed space at, um, at up at Mount Wilson before the Seismolab, Lab, the Kresge Lab was built. Uh, 1921, the Coast and Geodetic Survey provided support for a triangulation uh, survey. Um, 1923, there was a, an intriguing preliminary result suggesting that a lot of strain had built up across Southern California. And to jump ahead, Bailey Willis, a geologist, stepped forward in late 
1925, essentially making a prediction that a great earthquake was going to hit Southern California based on the strain result. And that got a fair amount of attention in the media. Uh, but the, the Wood Anderson seismometer, which was published in a paper by Anderson and Wood, um, that was developed in 25. There was a Santa Barbara earthquake that um, got some attention in 25 that wasn't quite in Los Angeles. Um, and then the, the network in the seismo lab moved forward. 26, the first permanent station was installed in Riverside, although there were instruments installed in Pasadena um, before then as experimental stations. So See, um, just a quick interruption from the chat. Um, we were wondering if it's possible to remove the little um, bar at the bottom. Oh, you can see that. Okay, sorry. Awesome. So yeah, and I can't see the chat when I'm in presentation mode. So um, people will have to break in. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of this, but there was sort of a back and forth that played out in the media where earthquake experts were starting to talk about earthquake hazard. Willis had made this fairly dramatic prediction and business leaders were pushing back against that. and. They, um, whoops, that went forward too fast. Robert Hill was a geologist mostly from Texas who turned out, who was sort of the geologist providing the counterpoint to some of Willis's statements. Um, yeah, maybe it, Charles Richter was hired by the Seismolab in 1928. In March of 1928, the St. Francis Dam disaster happened. And I'll, I'll mention that again in a minute. And a month later, this book came out that Hill had co-authored, which stirred up the, the debate. I'll talk about that. And then things sort of settled down. Um, insurance rates had risen in the area. They came back down. The Great Depression started around 1930. So earthquake, the, the, the earthquake monitoring, the network, got established, the debate had flared up and quieted down, 32, Caltech hired Bino Gutenberg. So that's sort of how things progressed. And I wanna talk a little bit about the debate that was going on. And it was embodied by two of these white male geologists who gathered in um, Harper's Ferry in the late 1800s. Robert Hill is here and Bailey Willis is there. They both worked for the USGS for much of their career. But this book that uh, Hill published included this splashy dust jacket that included a quote that said, essentially, Los Angeles has the least to fear from acts of God of any city under the American flag, 1928. So when Long Beach happened five years later, the very easy narrative was painting this book and, and Hill as, as, as a And but I want to go back to, to look at this book that captures what was, what did we know about um, earthquake hazard at that point? And or, you know, what did we believe? What did scientists believe? And why did they believe it? I think it's interesting to understand. Um, so if you look at natural disaster deaths in the Los Angeles area, I've tallied them with bold being things that happened before 1928. The St. Francis Dam collapse killed 430 people. It's still the largest loss of life in any disaster, you know, quote, natural in the in the Los Angeles area. But then if you look in the within the United States, and these numbers jump around, 
you know, what were the most deadly natural disasters in the U.S.? Um, and dark black is things that happened before 1928. Um, I put a thousand down for the San Francisco earthquake. Um, that's a different talk. You might the the conventional number is 3,000. That's not based on a whole lot. Um, I think 1,000 is the more reasonable number. But in any case, setting that aside, the deaths throughout the U.S. as of 1928 and still now, it's not earthquakes. It's storms, fires, floods. Mount Pele uh, wasn't U.S., but it was close enough to U.S. shores, killed 29,000 people. So to say that, you know, that Los Angeles isn't plagued by natural disasters wasn't as outlandish as it sounded if you're focused on the loss of life that's been seen. So um, Hill claimed, and, and as speaking for a school of thought, that viewed Los Angeles as a land of moderate seismic disturbances. And if you read this quote, it, it goes on to say that um, men of all ranks and professions have been content to build their property and risk their money here, and that means that the, the hazard isn't serious. Well, that, that, that argument I wouldn't want to defend. But is Los Angeles a land of moderate seismic disturbances? Um, maybe, maybe not, but maybe if you look at modern seismic hazard curves that show what peak accelerations are predicted with what frequency, um, if you look at like what's expected every 25 years, blue is Los Angeles, green is San Francisco, um, the two cities look pretty comparable. But if you come down and say, how often are both of these cities expected to experience 1G, San Francisco is more hazardous than, than Los Angeles because largely the proximity to the major faults of San Andreas and the, the frequency of events. So moderate's in the eye of the polder, but that statement I think wasn't as outlandish as it may have seemed. Um, another statement that definitely wasn't outlandish is that, um, and this is a quote from the book, that the severity of earlier historic tremors were overestimated because most of the damage was to these old adobe missions that had adobe mud walls that were very weak. This is a valid point. It's one that I make myself, if you've seen my talks, that when an earthquake happens historically or even today, the, report, the media, the attention focuses on the, the disasters, that's the, you know, the buildings that fall down, and they don't always give you a representative view of the impact. And this played out after the 2015 Gorka earthquake, where you may have seen uh, headlines like this that focused on the spectacular uh, damage. This was the Darahara Tower, which fell and, and killed um, the people who were quite a few people who were inside. So it was a, it was, it was a tragedy for Nepal. There were over 9,000 deaths and one doesn't want to minimize that in any way. But what struck me immediately having thought about this is you look at the background of a lot of these images and yes, there was this, this tragic collapse, but the, the buildings in the background are mostly intact. And my, my first visit to Nepal after the earthquake was about a month later. And I took this uh, picture, of, it was a video, uh, of right around the corner from Kathmandu, Durbar Square, the, one of the historic squares in Kathmandu, where, where the historic buildings were damaged. But 
for the most part throughout most of the city, you wouldn't know an earthquake had happened. There were there were scenes like this. Um, and these are not, you can, I think you can tell they're not quite, you know, they're not modern engineered structures like you'd have in the US. So this isn't, you know, the, the view that you see um, in the media is not, or what's reported is not necessarily representative. Um, one, one comment statement I want to talk about, which is sort of interesting, one argument that Hill made is this one that seismic conditions or activity are declining the time of great movement or faulting was principally in the Pleistocene epoch, living in a time of decreasing earth movements whose tendencies towards compacting of the strata are compacting the strata to geologic stability. There's a typo in there. What is he talking about? Well, it turns out that at the time, faulting was, was believed to be an overwhelmingly vertical process. The plate tectonics hadn't been developed. There were various theories that the earth was contracting, that maybe there were heat bubbles that were causing local, um, the, causing um, mountains to rise in some places, but faulting was, was understood to be vertical. And the first geologist who concluded that there had been significant uh, lateral displacement on the San Andreas was Levi Nobel, who apparently got such fierce um, opposition to the suggestion that he eventually backed away from it. So nobody understood plate tectonics. Nobody understood that you have, you can have substantial lateral faulting. And you might say, well, how did they miss the fact that the 1906 earthquake just yanked everything apart vertically? They sort of didn't explain it very well that I've seen. They kind of argued it away. The, well, it was a fluke that most earthquakes and most faults are, are vertical and, and 1906 was, was somehow an exception. Well, now we, we understand the tectonic evolution of, of the West. We know that there's been subduction. This is a crummy, uh, one of a couple of crummy uh, images, I apologize for that. But we know that there was subduction along the, it was a, the plate boundary in earlier times and then the San Andreas transform system developed. So if you believe that faulting is mostly vertical, um, then, and you look at when the mountains were built in California, you would reasonably conclude, and it was actually an astute, I think, observation, that, well, its activity is declining because yeah, of, of the way things played out. So by the 1930, 1928, the San Andreas had been mapped, uh, a lot of the faults in the LA basin had been mapped, at least sort of to first orders. Uh, some of this work was done by industry geologists. There was a 1923 BSSA paper uh, by Bailey Willis that was a fault map of the state that includes a lot of the faults that we know we recognize today. There was a 1924 paper, Ferguson, and this is Bailey Willis's son, that talked about faults in the LA basin, including the Newport Englewood. So that structure was known, those faults were known. Um, this is a modern view of the Newport Englewood, um, borrowing an LA Times um, graphic. And it was, it was the, the structure was recognized and the question arose early on of whether this was a through going fault. And this is a quote from Stephen Tabor, 1920, who said that yeah, it, the, the, the evidence supported this being a 
through going fold along the entire length where you have on echelon um, segments. So this fold zone was known. And the statement that Hill made that may have aged the, the least well is this one in red here. It cannot be said there is any great menace from the Newport Inglewood fault. Its releases from strain It consisted of small vertical movements, sometimes frightening, sometimes slightly damaging, but at no time seriously dangerous. Well, yeah, you to make that statement in 1928 and then have the 33 Long Beach earthquake happened and the statement didn't age well. But again, why did why would somebody conclude that in 1928? And one of the reasons is that nobody in earthquake science understood very much about earthquake ground motions. There were, as of 1930, there were no on-scale recordings of large earthquakes. And it was recognized to be a, um, a gap that and instruments were developed around 1930. They were first um, installed in the US, and I'll talk about that in a second, in 1932 because engineers realized they needed to have better data to constrain what, what strong shaking could be like. If you look back, this is a snippet of an earlier paper that earthquake professionals based on observations in Japan were, were thinking that maybe 40% G was the upper reaches of what shaking might reach. And they were also thinking that the biggest earthquakes, the great earthquakes, were going to give the highest, um, the highest shaking levels. And that, so there's been a lot. We know a lot more about ground motions than than they did back then. Um, so yeah, the first strong motion instruments developed in '32, installed in '33, and I'll get back to that. And then the last, um, the last bit of context I want to mention is. You know, Bailey Willis had made a prediction based on early uh, leveling data. And one of the points that Hill made was that the, the, the data are too slight, the records are too complete for coming to satisfactory conclusions about future earthquakes. And I think this, this statement has aged extremely well. I think it can be said equally well today. So, this whole debate had played out at times in the at times spilling over into the newspapers as seismic monitoring was moving forward and steps were being taken behind the scenes towards risk reduction uh, with the start of, of earthquake resilient design of some buildings um, towards the control of, of gas mains. Um, the 1923 Kanto earthquake, which also has a big anniversary this year, kicked up massive firestorms and had a horrific death toll. That was front page news around the world, including Los Angeles. And you know, people looked at that and they, you know, they realized that that there were serious hazards, that, that risks that needed to be mitigated. Um, by 1932, there was sort of this retrenchment that the debate had wasn't being fought out in the newspapers, the public talk had, had quieted down, the earthquake experts weren't making statements, and people had moved on to other concerns of the day, including the depression. And a footnote that has been in the news itself in recent days, because it's, it's sadly relevant, this is the headline from March 10th, 1933, so that local time, that was the day of the, the Long Beach earthquake. Um, 
On March 9th, FDR took essentially took control of the nation's banks because um, there was real concern for a series of bank failures that might you know, trigger even worse economic consequences. It was considered to be, quote, dictatorial powers to control the, the banks and ensure their stability. So that was February, uh, February, sorry, uh, March 10th in the morning. And the earthquake happened by the next day. Um, the headline was different. So the earthquake happened local time just before 6 p.m. on the 10th. The banking stories, which were, you know, massive stories, had got pushed out of the headlines temporarily because this major earthquake had just happened in the in the Southland. So um, it was, uh, this slide may be a little bit out of place, but it was recorded by early strong motion instruments. Um, and so this was the first true strong motion data that had ever been recorded. If you, th there was three stations, one in Long Beach, one in Vernon, one in Los Angeles. The Long Beach station may or may not have been off scale on the horizontals. That's the, that's what people have said. Eric Thompson has started looking at these records and is not is, thinks that maybe the horizontals were on scale. But in any case, you can go to the um, Strong Motion Data Center. You can download the records uh, triggered data. There was no pre-event buffer back then, but we do have that Strong Motion data. And so this is just to give you an overview. I'm going to talk at the end about. The science and how we've, you know, that has has let us put this together. That but this nice map that Luke Blair made just kind of is helpful to orient us for what happened. The epicenter was constrained by early Wood Anderson data and recognized early on to have been uh, near Huntington Beach, uh, probably slightly offshore with propagation unilaterally along the Newport Inglewood Fault. Um, extending up to Long Beach. And why is this, why did it become known as the Long Beach earthquake? It, because that's where the concentration of, of damage was. But if you look at the, um, if you look at the demographics back then, Huntington Beach was quite small. There, was, there were a few thousand people. There weren't a lot of people living in proximity to the, the rupture to experience really strong shaking. Los and, uh, Long Beach was um, had already 142,000 people, so it was a bigger town. So the damage and the fatalities were concentrated in Long Beach because that's where the, the people were. And then Los Angeles, the city had over a million people, but it, so, yeah. So yeah, this, um, the, the, the Newport Inglewood proved itself to be um, seriously, seriously damaging. Uh, the impact of this event was very well documented. There's a mountain of reports, of news articles, of photographs that document uh, spectacular instances of, of damage uh, Long Beach and elsewhere. And so some of them are clearly in damage to unreinforced masonry structures, but some of them, some there were masonry, substantial masonry structures well built. This was the new, brand new Compton City Hall. Um, 
that was it's masonry, but it's well built and very, um, very hard hit. And Compton in general got very hard hit in this earthquake. Uh, there are some credible accounts that really suggest that heavy machinery was thrown into the air. So suggesting greater than 1G vertical acceleration, but there was just a whole lot of damage in Compton to the point that some early experts thought the earthquake had been centered in Compton and it quickly the, the consensus came around to, to the, the, the known um, epicenter and, and rupture. But the, the immediate impact of the earthquake uh, there were about 120 deaths, and most of those were people running out of buildings. So this is why we tell people to drop cover and hold on, that um, California buildings aren't likely to collapse, but chimneys fall and architectural elements can fall. So we know that running outside is a bad idea. Um, the damage was about a billion dollars in today's dollars. A lot of school buildings were really hard hit, 70 destroyed, 120 damaged. Um, most of the schools in the, in the immediate epicentral area, and these, they, most of them had been built recently because the population was growing so rapidly. So the big, new, modern school buildings were really hard hit. And that really got the public's attention. The earthquake happened around 6 p.m and all the school buildings were almost entirely empty, but you didn't, any parent, any person who looked at the photographs knew that it could have been a very different story if the earthquake had happened four hours earlier. Um, in terms of the science, uh, we had the first strong motion data. There was the local seismic network, what Andersons were recording, uh, the main shock and aftershocks. There's no magnitudes in discussed in the earliest papers because the magnitude scale didn't exist in 1933. So the, the paper that introduced the magnitude scale and the word magnitude was published by Richter in 35. Using, um, after it was uh, first developed, seismologists went back to the, the um, the early recordings, they had the Wood Anderson amplitudes for Long Beach aftershocks and the phase picks. And so the start of the SCSN catalog goes back to 32 using those data and including the, the uh, aftershock sequence. So in terms of, the, um, there was the impact on science, but then Long Beach had I think pound for pound, a bigger impact on risk reduction in California than any other earthquake. And in part, I took you through all that context. It really was important that that debate played out. You had people like Harry Wood and, and Bailey Willis, um, Richter starting to talk about earthquake hazard and raise the issue. And the debate went back and forth. And then when the earthquake happened and all of a sudden the stakes were just on spectacular display, the, the, the pump had been primed for a couple of key pieces of legislation. And it wasn't, it wasn't the earthquake scientists or engineers who were doing this. These were um, spearheaded by local um, political leaders who you know, appreciated that the hazard. And so the Field Act was named, the better known of the two, it was named for Assemblyman Donald Field, which 
laid out lays out strict requirements for uh, construction of public K through 12 schools. It's patterned after the Dam Act, which was enacted after the um, after the St. Francis Dam collapse. So they had that template, and they were able to push it through, stipulating that that plans be reviewed by the state architect's office and willful violations would be published as a felony. And then the one you may not have heard as much about, the Riley Act required cities and counties in California to establish departments to regulate building construction and required buildings to resist lateral load. So that was, you know, that was starting to ensure that you couldn't just build um, unreinforced masonry structures. The first real unified building code came later. But if you ask why, why is California as resilient as it is, or you know, why is any place resilient or not, people, you tend to think about building codes. And the building codes do nothing you know, on paper. They do nothing. You, they have to be enforced. And that was what was absolutely critical about both of these pieces of legislation, was that the enforcement was, was baked in. And so it, there was this requirement that that um, people and municipalities take take steps towards risk reduction. Um, so let me um, let me move on in, in sort of the second half of my talk and to talk about modern science and um, the ways we can use the data that we have to understand the, the Long Beach earthquake and what happened. Um, so nowadays, seismologists have a bounty of mountains of data that come to us over the computer and we can do all sorts of um, nifty work with, with the data. Um, Long Beach was happened early in the instrumental era. Uh, so there were these strong motion, few strong motion records. There were these observations of greater than 1G acceleration. This part really wasn't taken to heart the way it might have been um, when the 71 Silmar earthquake happened and generated greater than 1G at Pacoima Dam. That was, the, I think, the real day of reckoning for the engineering seismology community. But, but you do have the strong motion data. You have the early network data that is let's us, it's been, the analysis has been revisited. There's a study by Hutton et al. revisiting the entire catalog in 2010. Um, we have quite a good catalog of the, of the aftershocks from these, this early network data. So this is something uh, Nick Banderels put this together for the, um, when we were planning the, the uh, anniversary commemoration. Nowadays, you probably know the USGS um, has an operational aftershock forecasting team that, that has led the development of forecasts that come out automatically for a large earthquake in the US. And that includes forecasts of the expected number of, of aftershocks of different magnitudes. So if you look, use some of those tools, this for magnitude 6.4 uh, main shock, you expect this within the aftershocks magnitude, uh, the number to be within the gray swath. So there's a range of variability. If you take the Long Beach catalog, you find that it's very consistent with expectations. It's on the high end. 
which means it was a relatively energetic sequence, which, you know, some sequences are more energetic than others. If you had modern, um, the ETOS model and with the sequence statistics, it would you would have uh, estimated a high chance of a magnitude five aftershock within the first year. These are numbers from Nicholas. As it happened, there was a relatively late low magnitude five aftershock in October. And the earth, it did a little bit of damage and it was reported, it was felt that it hastened to deaths of people who had heart problems, but you know, they, they had heart attacks uh, sh very shortly after the earthquake. And you realize that operational aftershock forecasting is really useful and valuable for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that it tells people that aftershocks are expected, this is normal. It can otherwise be very frightening if you've just been through a major earthquake and the ground starts to, to shake again, um, as in fact happened in, in this case. That was the aftershock, um, the network data. Most of the data for Long Beach is what we call macroseismic data. So by that, we mean the effects of earthquakes on the world, not recorded by instruments, but the effects on the built environment, on people, and on the natural environment. And um, macroseismic data come from a variety of sources. Uh, contemporaneous letters, reports, news articles, photographs, what happened. Um, nowadays, you can find some of it uh, through searchable online databases, catalogs. There's some uh, really valuable compilations, um, some fabulous work that Tucson Topazada's group led for, for many years. And then there is still information out there in dusty archives, not every scrap of, of human knowledge is, is online. Um, so that's macroseismic data. And I think there's a growing appreciation for the value of, of macroseismic data. It's sparked, I think, in large part by the Did You Feel It system um, that was developed by Dave Wall, Vince Cotoriano, and others that has produced unprecedented volumes of, of intensity information. Uh, but it's important to understand um, you know, the, it, it's important to understand the data and some of the issues before to before people's, you know, are to, to be able to fully exploit it. And I, I go back to work by Nicholas Ambracis going back 50 years, who, you know, was, I consider the, the godfather of, of modern historical earthquake research. Um, he had this paper in Nature in 1971. But macroseismic data, these effects, it's not PGA. You know, you have to understand where they came from. What's the historical context? What were the settlement patterns? What was the structural vulnerability 100 or 300 years ago? Where are the original sources? Are they credible? Uh, what were the reporting biases? And then an issue that Stacy Martin and I looked at recently, which accounts are available to science? If it's a colonial era, are we missing accounts from indigenous populations and does that matter? Um, so there's a lot of issues with macroseismic data. Also to analyze them, we use them to, uh, we assign numerical intensity values and that's what makes all of the quantitative analysis possible. 
I have in the past said intensity data, and I really I come around to thinking that I shouldn't do that. Intensity values are interpretations or interpreted data products. Um, if they're sub if they're assigned subjectively by me as an expert looking at an account, it's a subjective interpretation. Did you feel it uses an algorithm? But there's data aggregation, there's filtering that algorithm itself. They are interpretations and that can be important to keep in mind. Now, um, the value of macroseismic data and data products has been demonstrated in a number of ways that um, and I'm sort of segueing to, to give my extended elevator speech about, um, about all of this uh, by way of introducing the, the work on, on the Long Beach earthquake. I probably should have said that. So uh, a nice study by Atkinson and Mould showed that did you feel that intensities correlate surprisingly well with the instrumental uh, records that we have? Um, intensities are, this is a hill that I'm prepared to die on. Um, and I might have to. Intensities are overwhelmingly a measure of relatively high frequency shaking, especially for historic earthquakes, because long period shaking affects tall buildings. But the intensity information we have comes from the people and the structures that were out there at the time. And that's overwhelmingly smaller structures that respond to higher frequency energy. So this is a little calculation I did 20 something years ago. It, intensity scales have to be robust. And here's the argument that perceptible shaking spans a known range. And if you look at peak acceleration, it's about a factor of a thousand range from minimally perceptible shaking up to the maximum that we ever expect. So you have a 10 step intensity scale, which is what modern scales tend to have. That's in a little algebraic equation. Each step in intensity has to be a factor of two, give or take robustly, because you have to cover a certain range in 10 steps. So you've got a fairly robust integrated measure of fairly high frequency shaking. Now, one of the things that was recognized um, some time ago, worked by our, our own Tom Hanks, Arch Johnson, uh, Dave Bohr, and others, that because it's a high frequency measure, it it doesn't it it doesn't necessarily uh, give you a good estimate of moment magnitude. So this is something that the public doesn't realize, and some seismologists don't. I think sort of think it through. But if you're if you've thought about ground motions, you probably have. We've adopted moment magnitude as the gold standard for the measure of an earthquake. Moment magnitude is not a direct measure of radiated energy. It's a static measure of how big was the fault patch that moved and on average, how much did it move? The radiated energy uh, correlates with moment magnitude, but it depends on the details of rupture. And so we've adopted this and some, some earthquakes with a given magnitude radiate more energy than others. And we've adopted this very kind of fuzzy parameter stress drop that a lot can be said about there's different types of stress drop, but what it boils down to is stress drop tells you how much energy a earthquake radiated relative to its moment. And so I've been playing with, with little diagrams like this going back to 2014. If you think about the energy that an earthquake radiates as a function of magnitude, 
you get curves, these are velocity spectra with a simple model as a function of frequency going up to five hertz. But now you vary the stress drop parameter. So this is 4.6 to 5.4, vary the stress drop by factors of 10. And this high frequency shaking, which affects most structures, varies a lot um, on depending on the stress drop. So if you're looking at intensities, um, a average stress drop magnitude five earthquake may generate very similar intensities as a low stress drop magnitude six. So that, that it's, a, uh, it's a major issue that, that people need to be aware of. So that said, um, some of the methods that have been used to analyze intensity distributions are based on ground motion models. And so I've, I've done some of this, I'll, I'll, I'm jumping around a bit, I'm gonna come back to this later. But you can, one of the ways you can analyze an intensity distribution is to take a modern ground motion model that predicts, oh, well, this is a, a okay place to be. A ground motion model predicts how like peak acceleration and peak velocity um, is predicted to uh, depend on magnitude and distance. And it, um, the, the relationship I use is based on uh, Bohr et al. It uses the distance to the fault, basically. So you can turn that into intensities using a ground motion intensity convergent equation, and you get curves like this. So you can use these, um, these curves to, to consider what magnitude best fits the directly estimated intensities. And for 1906, um, you, that exercise gives you 7.9, which is the same answer that you get from the uh, analysis of instrumental data. So that's sort of the that's um, sort of the good news. And now to to get back to a couple of the limitations. And before I get back to the Long Beach earthquake to wrap up, so um, again, these are sort of general um, general thoughts on on analysis of and analysis of intensity based data. I've intensity based information. Um, you have the 1906 earthquake, the intensity distribution. Oh, I should have said this comes from the, the fabulous work by Jack Boatwright and uh, Howard Bunduck. If you turn that into intensity versus joint or bore distance, you get this curve. Well, now let's look at another earthquake the same way. You might recognize the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. It was clearly a very different earthquake and distribution. If you boil it down to intensities versus nearest fault, distance, they look remarkably similar. And this highlights, there's a paper interview that's uh, first authored by Madeline Lucas, um, but it illustrates two of the limitations of using intensity information. One is the stress drop issue that Loma Prieta had a high stress drop. So it radiated, uh, it had relatively high intensities for its magnitude. Um, so if this had been a historical event and we tried to estimate the magnitude, we could come out way too high. The other issue is this reliance on nearest fault distance, that if you are, if that's what you're looking at, any information that constrains the overall length of a rupture, which is really important for determining moment magnitude, will fall out when you collapse it to nearest fault distance. So this leads to a, a, a Suhoff quote <laughs> that I, I like to say, every historical earthquake is historical in its own way. 
it, the, the data are enormously valuable, but they just don't lend itself themselves to turn the crank approaches. Um, this is a map of a moderate earthquake near Whittier in 1929. And if you've heard my talks before, you may have seen this. But to analyze, to make use of the, this information, you need to understand you know, the context, the people that were there, the, the credibility of the data, the, the completeness of the data, the credibility of the interpretations. And I call your attention to this funny little north-south line of, in, this, in this intensity distribution. Well, that turns out to be Charles Richter in a vehicle driving down San Gabriel Boulevard and talking to people about their experiences during the earthquake. So the fact for this earthquake, the fact that you were had observations and interpretations by the likes of Charles Richter and Harry Wood is key information um, that's important. But in general, you just you have to consider the totality of the evidence, understand the the context, um, the the data, and then if there's any information that can constrain rupture extent or co-seismic displacement, that can be absolutely critical for distinguishing between large and moderately large earthquakes. So with all of that, um, I'm going to talk about, with the time left, the, the get back to Long Beach. There's a quite good intensity distribution. Uh, the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey published a compilation of, of effects with over 200 separate cities that I looked at and in a study I did with Rob uh, a couple of years ago to put together this intensity distribution. I should probably speed up. Um, and then once you have that information, a number of methods have been developed to analyze it uh, for magnitude or rupture properties, going back to work that was based on isoseismal area, work that was done, a method developed by Bakken and Wentworth, widely and successfully applied, and then methods to explore rupture scenarios uh, and different methods that have been used. You're basically, it's, it's similar to modeling instrumental data, but you're trying to model intensity distributions. So there's a, the very various approaches using semi-stochastic modeling, dynamic modeling, a really nice study by Julian Mozos, ground motion modeling. And when I teamed up with Rob a couple of years ago, we used the method he's been developing through much of his career. It's a kinematic rupture modeling approach that uses um, a fault with uh, variability that's that's random, but you can you can test different models by um, picking a random realization that includes a, a shallow sub-event or a prosperity or, or a deeper disparity. You can look at rupture length. Um, and Rob is Rob has given talks on the details of all of this. But you can use that approach predict shaking within a three-dimensional velocity structure, look at simulations and use that to develop uh, a preferred rupture scenario. And I'm, so you're, you know, it's not, this isn't set up as an inverse problem. The way it's done, it's forward modeling and it is, it's iterative and I'm, I'm not gonna go through the details, um, but I wanna show you uh, this movie that, that Rob put together and there's a spiffier version I'll mention later, but this is from the um, the preferred rupture model. Let's get it to play. 
So I'm going to play it like two or three times. The earthquake nucleates, it propagates up the Newport Inglewood fault. And then one of the, the key um, things that this reveals is there's a velocity gradient across the Newport Inglewood fault. This is using the Harvard velocity model that there's a velocity gradient. And that turns out to essentially channel energy. So play it again. The earthquake happens, it propagates up. And then you start to channel energy. You can sort of see it going towards, really towards the central LA basin. Compton was in here. And this is the explanation for why Compton was so hard hit. It was 3D propagation effects. And one last time, but I think you can really see if you track it, what's happening to the energy. So um, this is getting back to, this is the, the view of the earthquake that we have. Uh, there was a study by Haugsen and Gross, 91, that looked at the teleseismic data and the Wood-Anderson data, came up with a magnitude 6.4. The epicenter is, is uh, down here. And then this rupture model, um, we've proposed a 25 kilometer rupture length. That's the modern view. The, from the sim, from Rob's uh, modeling, you get a 6.45, which is consistent essentially with uh, Hauksen and Gross, so 6.4 to 6.5. Um, Dave Wald's group, uh, Sonia Ellison and Eric Thompson used the um, the recently published results to update the shake map, um, which is I think it's sort of cool. It including a a finite fault model and the directly estimated intensity data gives you, I think, a pretty good uh, look at, at what the impact of this earthquake. So um, to cap, to wrap up, I've covered a lot of ground and possibly too much, but there's so many fascinating facets of this earthquake that it, it had such a tremendous legacy and impact. It was only moderately large, but where it happened and when it happened in the context, it just had this this tremendous impact on on um, on the process of risk reduction. So we, it gave us the first strong motion data, the first network data for a major California sequence. It taught us about the the field about the hazard from moderately large earthquakes. It showed us that there really is high hazard in the, the greater LA area, and not just from the San Andreas, but from these local faults. It underscored the need, critical need for earthquake engineering and legislative solutions with teeth. And that's what really put California on the path that it's still on today towards real um, risk reduction and improved resilience. And the very last slide, I wanted to highlight some of the products, the public facing products that were put together uh, for, the, for the recent anniversary. Um, I'm not sure people are aware of these, but Scott Hafner, Hafner put together a special collections page that pulls together various content, including a spiffed up version of the animation, which Rob Graves worked on um, with some input from Paul P.K. Caschio. Uh, the graphics the Luke Blair put together, the, the improved shake map is available now on the Comcat event page, but you can also find a link to that page through the special collection page. Um, there are a lot of photographs for the event that are 
within the USGS Photographic Library. The, um, so resources if, if you're looking for, for photos. And then there were some anniversary activities that were for, for social media. Those are sort of ephemeral and weren't really captured for, for posterity. So it's, it's always fun sitting in my dining room and talking out into the, the void with <laughs> I hope the connection hasn't dropped and everyone has been, um, been able to hear this, but I'd like to thank everyone uh, for uh, joining me for this little walk down memory lane. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. And thank you again to, to the organizers. So are there people out there? Did you... <laughs> Hi, I think I heard my name there. Uh, wonderful talk, Sue. Uh, I wish you could give an entire presentation on the Great Quake debate. Um, yeah, going I'm... back. Yeah, yeah. Go that ahead. was done as unofficial expression. So I'm, I'm wearing my USGS hat and not my author's hat. But that's where, yeah, that's I researched a lot of that on my own time. So. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, going back to the publication of Hill's book, what was the the position of the USGS on his position, which we see as extreme now, uh, versus Willis's position? Well, the USGS really wasn't in the earthquake business um back then it was it was founded to map mineral resources and both hill and willis were employed willis was mapping iron deposits in the in the um what do you call it like the iron ranges not far from where i'm sitting uh hill was doing early work um yeah so the usgs didn't really get into the earthquake hazard game until shortly before neherp was enacted. So they weren't really, it was the early earthquake exploration, it was the purview of universities. So Caltech was running the, or well, Carnegie was supporting the, the network, but it was really uh, you know, done together with Caltech and Berkeley was doing, of course, the, the monitoring in Northern California. So there was, I think Carnegie did, there was sensitivity. Um, I, I skipped over that bullet point, but Willis ended up be getting money from Carnegie to take a world tour in, in 1926 and 27. And so he, he sort of sparked this debate. He made these, this, these alarmist statements. And then magically he had money to kind of be off the scene. And I kind of had the sense that maybe people realized that they needed to like quiet down and having him touring the world might not be a bad thing. That's speculation. Well, they played an indirect hand in it. <laughs> yeah. And Caltech, Caltech was convinced to tamp down um, public statements from their early, um, their early professors who were starting to, you know, make public statements. They backed away from those pretty quickly. Okay, thanks, Sue. <laughs> Are there any other questions in the chat? Um, I can see. All oh, right. Okay. 
Christine asks, despite the inherent variability in earthquake ground motions and in intensities, how do you see the use of did you feel it support hazard assessment today? Yeah, that's um, in a whole lot of different ways. Intensity information has always been way more spatially rich than instrumental information. And so we're seeing you know, collecting this, this huge volume of data that's telling us about small scale variability of, of shaking. And so it's being used by, um, by early warning, uh, for example, there, uh, for ground motion studies, it's used to flesh out shake maps. Um, it's, not, it's not weighted equally with instrumental information, but a lot of times the details in a shake map are coming um, in some parts, sometimes large from did you feel it intensities. The Mineral Virginia earthquake was felt by more Americans than any other earthquake in history. If you look at that shake map, there weren't that many instrumental recordings out there. Um, but the fact that it is, that it does correlate well with instrumental data, I think has opened up a lot of, of really um, important opportunities. My father experienced the Long Beach earthquake. Wow. You know, I spoke to, so 90 years is the ragged edge of collective human memory. There may be people out there alive who just barely remember it, but you know, not for, that's not gonna go on last for very much longer. About five or 10 years ago, I spoke to a woman who was a small child in Long Beach who went through it and she had, she had all her marbles in, into her 90s. Her brother was reportedly the only child that was killed in a in a school collapse that day because he had been at a track meet and went back into the school building i think it was woodrow wilson high to take a shower and, and he was killed um but i met her um you know and she, boy she she said she thought it was the end of the world she did she and her, she clung to her mother and didn't know about earthquakes and all of a sudden it's just this insane level of shaking yeah it's interesting if any of those stories that you can capture you know before they they vanish it's it's important to to preserve that those histories does um someone in yosemite have a question yeah uh this is wayne sue i really appreciated the historical context in which you <laughs> Describe the earthquake. It was really informative and and revealing of changing attitudes in California. Uh, as Tom Hanks whispered in my ear uh, when you were talking about how lateral faulting wasn't appreciated in Southern California, the 19 the Lawson report on the 1906 earthquake in Northern California uh, showed a map of the San Andreas Fault through California, yeah, as well yeah. as I think an account of the 1857 earthquake. So what's yeah. your sense as to why scientists in California, in Southern California in particular, still didn't appreciate that lateral faulting was important? 
That's a really good question. And, and I've seen cases throughout my career where the best modern data will be argued away as a fluke. And that always makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah, how can, how did they, you know, come to grips with what had just happened? And there, there is a brilliant account of 1857 that it looked like the earth had been bisected and the two halves had slipped past each other. It was like strike slip faulting. It just the whole paradigm was was off base. You don't have plate tectonics. You're thinking about cooling of the earth or maybe mountain building. There were all these theories about heat blisters that were causing um, mountains to to rise in some cases. And you're, if you're coming at something from a fundamentally wrong paradigm, you know, contradictory evidence, you just don't always. Uh, you know, really appreciate it or, or understand it. At the, that I've seen, it was just considered an anomaly. That well, this happened, but it's not. It's not common. It does make me wonder: what are we coming at now with a wrong paradigm? You know, what are we missing? And <laughs> yeah, um, one of the when you toss that question out, people will sometimes say, "Well, the role of fluids." And, you know, are, are there things that we're fundamentally missing about the role of fluids and earthquake nucleation that are really critical for understanding earthquake processes? But it is, yeah, it's sobering to sort of look back and, you know, these were smart people. They were yeah. people yeah. who were working within the, the framework of their day. So. I've gone a bit over time, so thank you to everyone who's stuck with me. So right, do we want to stop the recording now and just open it to a general chat?